Welcome to Half Hour of Heterodoxy. This is Chris Martin. I'm here today with Lee Jessen. He's a professor of psychology at Rutgers University. He does research in social psychology, particularly on stereotype accuracy. He's been doing research on that for several decades now. He's the author of Social Perception and Social Reality, which summarizes a lot of this research. And he blogs at Rabble Rouser, which is part of the Psychology Today blog network. So welcome to the show, Lee. Thanks for having me, Chris. This is great. Thank you. So I wanted to start by talking about your work on stereotype accuracy, which has been going on for several decades now. And you've started to tie that work in as some of the discussions psychologists are having about methodology and improving methodology in the social sciences. So can you talk about that trajectory that your work has taken over time? Yeah, so. I think of myself, and I would like to think of my field of social psychology as a scientific field. I believe in science, I am enthusiastic about it, and so I am acutely pained when the field that I so strongly identify with and want to advance has basic failures in the conduct as a normal science. And I discovered this when I began to examine the claims about stereotype inaccuracy. This is a long time ago. This started in the late 80s, early 90s. Peppered throughout social psychological scholarship going back decades and decades to the 1920s and 30s are declarations that stereotypes are inaccurate. And what, you know, when I first, you know, you, you learn this as a graduate student, I learned it as a graduate student in the 80s. And then later, I'm like, okay, fine. I want to review the literature. I want to understand the bases for these claims that stereotypes are inaccurate. And what I discovered was this, you know, in hindsight, I, I mean, it took me, dec it really took me years and years, really decades, to believe that this was really the state of affairs. And what the state of affairs was that I, I was just jaw dropped by was that article after article did either one of two things. It simply declared stereotypes inaccurate without a reference. Now, why do you need a reference? Well, in, I mean, you know the answer to this, but uh, yeah. for anybody who is not an active scientist, if you're making a, a claim about the state of the world, you need to provide either have your own original or refer to others' data showing that that is the state of the world. So that people could just declare it without evidence was strange. But there was a second um, sort of quirk in this literature that sometimes sometimes people did reference something. You know, so Smith might cite Jones. So I'd say, okay, well, fine, let's see what Jones has. And Jones had no data that addressed the accurate. Jones usually said that stereotypes were in, inaccurate, right. but Jones actually had no data showing that stereotypes were inaccurate. So we eventually, uh, three or four years ago, started calling this the black hole in declarations of stereotype inaccuracy. 
that is, what, you know, we would look and look and look, and there were at the bottom of these scholarly declarations, one way or another, there was nothing. It's like, what kind of science are we? We're, we're basically, you know, the, this the idea that stereotypes are inaccurate was an alternative fact before alternative facts, you know, entered the lexicon. Right. Well, to be fair, part of that probably goes to Walter Lippmann, and he coined the word stereotype to describe a belief that was by definition inaccurate, and psychologists glommed onto that and then never, never got any data on whether in general that holds. Yes, that's exactly right. That is absolutely the history of it. I mean, yeah. he referred to stereotypes as a picture in the head. And if you, what is a picture? It's a uh, rigid, fixed, oversimplified image of reality. That practically describes how much of the social scientists think about stereotypes. And this, Lippmann was a, basically a news guy writing right. in the 1920s. I mean, he had no data. I mean, his data was kind of, you know, the, the social condition or something like that. But he had nothing that we would recognize as modern social science data. And that's fine. You know, Lippmann's book was actually a very interesting read. I think he makes some really good points. But, but, but the idea that that is what sent you know, social psychology on a 90-year wild, I mean, it's not even a wild goose chase. I was, that's what I was going to say. If it was a wild goose chase, people would have assessed the accuracy of stereotypes and then very quickly realized that the claim about inaccuracy was, you know, at least not general. There's examples of inaccurate stereotypes out mm -hmm. there, but it's not a, a general characterization of stereotypes. But it wasn't even a wild goose chase. It was just taken as fact without data. Right. And the funny thing is psychologists, social psychologists do make generalizations about groups of people, about which groups are more prejudiced and which groups are less prejudiced. But when they're backed by data, you call them generalizations, not stereotypes. And there's no oh. clear line, really. It's just customary to call those generalizations. A absolutely. So, uh, you know, across the social sciences, whether I'm such a, such a social psychologist, not just psychologist, it's sociologists, it's cross-cultural psychologists, it's anthropologists, people make, scientists make generalizations. Exactly. And, and uh, the only potential difference is the extent to which social scientists' generalizations are based on data versus lay people's. But, and I call it a potential difference because it's an empirical question, right? How, to what extent do lay people's beliefs about groups also correspond to data? And when people be began empirically assessing that, usually, though not always, they found that people's beliefs corresponded pretty well to the data also. Yeah. <laughs> so now you're connecting that work to work on methods. Well, yeah. So, so my work on methods is untraditional for the most part, because you know usually people, social scientists think about methods as you know research design, um, questionnaire design, uh, how to how to ask different kinds of questions in a survey, or how to optimally design an experiment. Um, or which statistics perform? Do you do null hypothesis testing? Do you do Bayesian statistics? Do you do some latent variable modeling? Uh, there's all different things. And right. that's most, I've done most of those things one way or another, but, but my science reform efforts are on methods, but they're not mostly on those kinds of methods. So a lot of what 
my own stuff has been about over the last five or six years is trying to sort of flush out the nature and manifestation of researchers, mostly social psychologists, but not exclusively social psychologists, is you can think of them as confirmation biases. But confirmation bias is probably a little bit too narrow or narrowly understood, right? So the idea of confirmation bias is people, you know, they, they selectively seek out information that confirms their pre-existing beliefs. They're more critical of information that disconfirms their beliefs, whereas they're not as critical about information that confirms their beliefs. And as, right. as far as I can tell, those patterns really do pervade the social sciences. Um, and one way that manifests is you can see this in you by comparing stereotyping accuracy or inaccuracy to almost any other area if people are going to make a cl any claim that that intrinsic motivation you know, increases academic achievement they're going to have data to support the claim they're either going to have their own data or they're going to cite some you know famous review article or meta-analysis right but if they want to declare stereotypes are inaccurate they don't need any data like that's just that's fine you can just do that so that's like a that's one manifestation of this you, there are others though. So, when, whenever, almost whenever research comes out that sort of contests left-wing egalitarian narratives, you know, this or that group is subject to massive prejudice, discrimination. Which I am not in the business of denying evidence of discrimination. But sometimes there's evidence that you know some system is egalitarian or meritocratic or whatever it might be. When that evidence comes out, the social sciences just jump all over this as if it is anathema. And they're nowhere near as critical to the evidence showing you know inequality or discrimination or whatever. So that's right. another manifestation of the same problem. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you're working that. It, so you've edited two books now in the last three years about tying this yes. stuff to methods and how to make psychology and make the social sciences less biased. One of those is the politics of social psychology. Which is on the verge of coming out. It's not quite out yet, but that is all sort of tied up in a neat little bow and that will be coming out soon. That's good, um, yeah. And that's great. That's a compilation of stuff really, it's mostly though not exclusively social psychology. So there's chapters on evolutionary psychology and kind of the political resistance to evolutionary psychology. That's uh, uh, Williams and Cece who sort of have this uh, famous series of papers saying that you know discrimination against women in STEM exists, but is probably not the major source of the gender gap in STEM. That's, that gap probably comes from other things. They've received all sorts of hell for that. There's a new survey by uh, Bill Von Hippel and David Buss that um, surveyed social psychologists and asked who they voted for in the 2012 presidential election. So I'm doing this by memory. I might have the numbers very slightly off. Right. If I remember correctly, it was something like 299 out of 304 respondents voted for Obama. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with voting for Obama. That is not the point of this. What that is is such a gigantic political skew that it is virtually impossible to check. It's not impossible, probably over. That's probably overstated. It makes it very difficult to check the potential of sort of runaway left-wing biases dominating the field on politicized and sometimes even topics that are not obviously politicized have political elements, and it may even be more difficult to combat those. So, mm -hmm. so, there, so there's that in there. And then 
almost all of the chapters have um, recommendations about how to combat, you know, for, for researchers who are sincerely and earnestly committed to doing their best to engage in unbiased research, which I still believe is most of my colleagues. I don't think it's mm -hmm. all of my colleagues. I think a lot of bias occurs unintentionally. That, you know, you take your political assumptions for granted, and it's very easy to do that when everybody thinks like you. So it's, that makes it hard to combat them. So for, so these recommendations, so, so I, would, I would still, I would need more evidence than I have now before I come to the uh, conclusion that most of my colleagues have no interest in combating their own biases. I, I, my default is that most do. So the final chapter in this book is sort of a fairly short summary and compilation of this set of recommendations about how to limit political biases uh, in one's own research. So I feel really good about that. So that's the one book. The other right. book is in progress. Um, we actually just, it's probably not going to be out for a couple of years, um, but just got approval from Oxford to go ahead with this. Um, and uh, it is sort of a survey across the social sciences of people who've been active in the science reform movement doing chapters on you know everything from sort of transparency to replication to pre-registration to statistics to sort of a whole gamut and so I mean, it's not just psychology it's yeah, economics and and and, and, uh, um, um, and and sociology and political science i mean it's really across the board so we're very excited about that that one's in progress though so look okay, at what's that one going to be called um, what is that one called? I think it's called, it's a sort of working title, it's like Research Integrity in the Social Sciences, something like that. All right. Yeah. Okay, so it's coming out in two years. Yeah, it's probably about two years away. Question about coverage of this in general. So we've got these books edited by you and Jared Crawford, but when it comes to textbooks, Psych 101 textbooks, social psych textbooks, and handbooks, which are more directed at grad students and professors. I know one thing you wrote about about 10 years ago was that handbooks were just doing a terrible job of covering stereotype accuracy research, which I can confirm is the case. <laughs> uh, well, I confirm as of five years ago, that was the case. Right, uh, right. Is anything getting better there? It's really hard to tell. So it's funny that you ask this because I have this set of interests for me has coalesced around the issue of obstacles to scientific self-correction. So this is one of the um, premier claims that advocates of any field will make to sort of essentially privilege their way of understanding the world, that we're a science, and no, we don't always get everything right, but one of the great things about science, compared, you know, science referring to us as social psychologists or sociologists, or whatever the field is that making the proclamation, is that science is self-correcting. We are self-correcting. If we said something that was completely wrong, we would figure it out. That's the proclamation. And it's not completely wrong, but it's way way oversimplified and correction is way more difficult than that suggests and not just in our field so what my favorite example of that because it's so vivid and so clear is from biomed and that is until fairly recently most people including most of the medical establishment uh, believed uh, that uh, ulcers came from stress 
Right. This, everybody knows it. Probably lots of lay people who would be attending to this probably still believe that stress causes ulcers. Stress doesn't cause ulcers. Bacteria causes ulcers. The guy who discovered this discovered it in the early 1980s, and he was dismissed, ignored, you know, viewed as a crackpot, and just, you know, had the damnedest time getting this, you know, this medical corporate engine that had revolved around the conclusion that stress caused ulcers to recognize that actually they were wrong, right? That's what mm-hmm. self-correction is. Claim A was wrong, and there's a new claim that is right. That's what self-correction, I mean, self-correction can be more nuanced than that, yeah, there could be a little modification here, blah, blah, blah. but mm-hmm. in the strongest form, it's no, this was wrong, yes, this is right. It took him, I mean, he eventually got the Nobel Prize for demonstrating this, mm-hmm. but it took him decades to persuade much of the medical establishment that that was actually true. And that's in medicine. So mm-hmm. all of these issues, I mean, the issue you raised, you know, was what your, the question you asked was how well have, have uh, textbooks and handbooks captured the idea that really the evidence is showing that stereotypes at least sometimes are pretty accurate. There's the, the, so we had a review paper on stereotype accuracy come out two years ago. Um, and this is kind of interesting. Um, and you know, we reviewed the evidence showing that stereotypes are mostly pretty accurate, not completely. There's some systematic evidence on inaccuracy. And one of the reviews was, well, everybody knows this already. And we're like, where the hell are you getting this from? But okay, that's our opinion. So what we did was a small content analysis of uh, about eight or 10 um, textbooks and uh, sort of graduate level review books by famous people in social psychology. So these are not, you can't dismiss these as, oh, well, yeah, nobody ever heard of this person. It's some outlier. No, these are like core people in social psychology. And the, the, there were three patterns, not divided evenly. About 40% simply continue. So there's a, there's a great, I, I love it. In somewhere in the 1930s, Winston Churchill was referring to the uh, prime minister of, of Britain in the mid 30s was Stanley Baldwin. Stanley Baldwin was the people assume was Neville, Neville Chamberlain was the main person behind the appeasement of Germany policy, but it was really Stanley Baldwin was the architect of appeasement. Churchill once said, this is a very close paraphrase, I'm doing this from memory, referring to Baldwin. He occasionally stumbled on the truth, but would simply pick himself up and carry on as if nothing had happened. <laughs> Referring to that, they kind of realized that Germany was having this big buildup, it was going to be dangerous, but they didn't change anything they did. That is just such a beautiful description of failures to self-correct. So about 40, about 40% of the books that we looked at just blithely continue to describe stereotypes as inaccurate. Okay. Another 40%, so is this self-correction? You know, if, if I think it's if if it if it used to be here and I think it should be here, you know, if it moves here, is that self-correction? Well, it's some degree of self-correction. So what you had in about 40% were dismissals of the importance of studying stereotype accuracy. So you would have explicit blunt claims. Well, some people have started studying stereotype accuracy, but whether st- 
scholars of intergroup relations don't really consider this to be a major question. Let's get back to bias. So they're not really denying the, like it would be, I would be going too far if I said they were denying the evidence. They are consciously choosing to ignore it. And I find this, you know, this beautiful double standard. It's like when talking about the sort of failures in scientific processes for nearly a hundred years, social psychologists, social scientists generally, but now we're talking about social psychologists, have been proclaiming to the world the inaccuracy of stereotypes. Then when the data start coming in showing, well, no, not really, actually most stereotypes that we study are pretty accurate. Now it's unimportant to make any statement about the accuracy of stereotypes. This is just a bizarre, another completely bizarre state of, of scientific, I mean, it's understandable from a political standpoint, from a social action or a social justice standpoint. It's got lots of standpoints it makes sense from, but not from a scientific standpoint. Okay, so that's about 40%. And we did have about 20% making statements that were sort of true to the literature. That, you know, the evidence has started coming in and although not all stereotypes are accurate, there's more evidence of the accuracy of stereotypes than we once believed. Like probably pretty reasonable characterizations of the, of the evidence. And that's about 20%. So, and now again, it's not, we didn't do a, any sort of representative sampling. So my 40, 40, 20 breakdown, I'm not making any claims that that generalizes to the entire literature. We didn't do that kind of systematic work. We simply took these sort of 11, 12 of these prominent texts, and that's what we found. I would, so I would take that as a working hypothesis that that's about right. I would say experientially, that's about right. In the, the last two handbooks of social psychology, you know, these are the big stock-taking reviews of the field. There was no discussion of stereotype accuracy whatsoever in any of the chapters on intergroup relations. On the other hand, Todd Nelson is the editor of a series called The Handbook of uh, Stereotypes, Prejudice, and Discrimination. There have been two volumes, and each time he asked me to do a chapter reviewing the evidence on stereotype accuracy. So I can't... Yeah, he, it's there. I mean, it's certainly there. It's in that handbook. So I, I get that's sort of my metaphor is that if this is where it was, this is where I think the evidence is, it's moved here. So things are a little better. I think a little one of the better. things that's tough about studying this is people were interested in stereotyping to begin with, not so much because of the content, but because of the act of stereotyping, where people ignore individuating information about you and just apply the stereotype. And uh, from reading your books, I've gathered that there are, well, you have studied what people do with individuating information once they have it, but almost the entire implicit bias world, for example, is just studying stereotypic information in the absence of any information about each individual, so you exactly. don't have any individuating information to go on anyway. So it doesn't that is so, Chris, that nails it. Your summary there exactly nails the internal state of scientific affairs. We, I had a graduate student, she's actually lead author, just submitted a paper on this using the IAT to assess the effect of stereotypes and uh, individuating information on implicit person perception. So they're not asked to judge, you know, uh, 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 um, the, say, the in intelligence or competence or academic achievement of blacks or whites. 
they are asked to judge the intelligence or competence of Bob versus Rashid. Right. And when we do that, we get the, the same pattern, essentially the same pattern. It's a little more nuanced than this, but essentially the same pattern that we've gotten, that we, that anybody who has ever studied this has gotten for the last 35 years, ever since Loxley's work on this stuff, that individuating information overwhelmingly dominates the um, uh, even implicit person perception. So if Rashid has, you know, sky high GRE scores and graduated valedictorian of his class, people at the same point, you know, Rashid's a pretty bright guy. So uh, now none of this stuff, we also have small evidence of stereotype bias in there. It is theirs. Um, nothing, I've, I mean, I've, on and off, depending on the study, my entire career. I have found evidence of stereotype biases. We found evidence of stereotype biases in this set of studies that we just submitted, but they right. are small in comparison to the individuating information. People, there are unusual circumstances where people actually do don't pay that much attention to bona fide existing available individuating information, but that is the unusual exception rather than the common rule. People love to make that. There's, a, there's an unpublished paper, so you, I, you've, you may know about this, and some viewers may know about this. There have been a series of sort of exposés of race bias in Airbnb reservations, right? right so, uh, yeah, right. So, if you have a black-sounding name, you're less likely to get a, either a response or be told that the room is the room or apartment is available. And I believe that. I I have no reason to think that's not true. I assume that that's true. Um, however, uh, an audit study replicated that finding, but then also found that if the applicants, if the, if the people requesting room reservations had um, uh, ratings as part of the Airbnb system, so just as the rooms can be rated, the people who stay in the rooms are now, for the last few years, have been rated. So you could have a four-star rating or a five-star <laughs> rating. So when the, when the Airbnb you know, room seekers were had like suboptimal ratings, you know, like two or three-star, or maybe it was, it was a critical comment, regardless of whether they were black or white, people didn't want them in their apartments. When they right. had high ratings, they accepted them. There was no race bias whatsoever. So I was like, okay. Now, so, now, so why is this interesting? Because both things, the, the two points are not mutually exclusive. Does race bias exist? Do people make assumptions based on race? Yeah, absolutely they do. But if you give them the individuating information, overwhel not absolutely always, but overwhelmingly they rely on it. Okay. Right. Kind of brings me to the next question I was going to ask anyway, which is about stereotypes of conservatives. Liberals have stereotypes of conservatives, conservatives have stereotypes of liberals. In academia, the fact that liberals have stereotypes about conservatives is probably more relevant. Um, to what extent are they accurate or inaccurate? Right, okay, so there's been, over the last 10 years or so, there's been this blossoming of research on the accuracy of, of, of liberals and conservatives' beliefs about each other. And so, you know, I'm talking about within the United States. Outside the United States, I'm not as familiar with the literature. And among lay people, the, there all sorts of patterns have emerged, but the sort of summarizing briefly, what you get are people are pretty good at getting the direction. So people know that liberals are, you know, more left wing than conservatives, and uh, you know, so they get the sort of placement on the ideological continuum on on issue positions, the, the direction right, but they usually exaggerate the real differences. So people, on average, you know, 
there's all sorts of individual differences and there's exceptions, but on average, the, and, and the, more, the more extreme you are, so the more liberal you are, the more you exaggerate conservative positions as being even more right-wing than they are. And it's symmetrical because the more conservative you are, the more right-wing you are, the more you, you, know, you exaggerate or extremitize liberals' positions. And you, kind of, you can see this in real life where liberals routinely refer to kind of mainstream conservatives as Nazis and fascists and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, you know, conservatives in the real world, sort of normal everyday people, but, you know, would refer to Obama as a socialist or a Marxist or something like this. So, so you, that, that, the more partisan you are, the more you tend to extremitize and exaggerate the positions held by your opponents. Now, if we apply that to academia, I mean, I don't, I'm not aware of research on political stereotype accuracy among academics. It may be out there, but I'm not aware of it. But if you assume it, if you, if you take as a working assumption that the work on lay people characterizes academics, you have, you, we, I mean, we're academics, have a, a really severe problem on our hands because the social sciences and humanities especially, and to some extent the sciences, although it's probably important but less important in some ways in the sciences, um, uh, are overwhelmingly dominated by people on the left. You know, there's like minor exceptions maybe in econ and political science where they're dominated, but it's just not overwhelming. Like it's like 67% people on the left as opposed to like 98%. Um, and most of the other fields, it's, it's, it's just gigantically high. And so if what you then have are uh, people in, in social, and my guess is that uh, people in the social sciences and humanities, on average, they, they kind of range typically from traditional kind of center left Democrats to like, you know, extreme, true bona fide socialists and Marxists. The more, and, and if the more extreme, so, so the point would be that if people on the extreme left are probably overrepresented, there is good evidence for that compared to the population in academia, especially the social sciences and humanities, and if such people are most likely to uh, unjustifiably exaggerate the views of their ideological opponents, you're going to have academia filled with people who despise conservatives because they truly see them as fascists and Nazis. You know, and so why is that a problem? It's a problem intellectually because for, for all sorts of reasons. This feeds back to the confirmation bias problem, right? That, that to the extent that the social sciences address political issues and simply stigmatize people who disagree with their views, then it's going to be very difficult to have an honest academic intellectual conversation about zillions of politicized issues. To me, that's the core. There's other parts of it. I, you have discrimination against conservative academics and people's careers being damaged or ruined or prevented. Or There's all sorts of sort of, uh, um, uh, sort of tangential side effects that are really important to the individuals. But the, the core, as I see it, the core problem, the big sort of scientific integrity failure is that this gigantic political lopsidedness is a major obstacle to self-correction across these disciplines. So in a, in a way what you're saying is the problem is not 
necessarily just stereotyping, but prejudice. Yeah, actually, prejudice is probably even more important than the stereotyping. It's the disdain, the dislike, the stigmatism. In my own department, I love my department. I I love working at Rutgers. I'm very happy here. You know, I've been chair of the department. It's I like it here. I like it here a lot. So after the election, um, you know, as you know, I mean, you did a guest blog on my, you know, on my website. It was kind of about the discussion with your class about the, about the election. Right. So people were very concerned and, you know, for reasonable reasons, I think there were good reasons to be concerned. Uh, you know, there was the rise in hate crimes and harassment and all that kind of, and colleges want to tamp that down and they should, I'm glad they want to tamp that down. I don't want people being harassed on my campus. Okay. So we had a diversity committee meeting, you know, about sort of the aftermath of the election. Um, and, yeah, there was a lot of discussion of sort of the traditional things that you would have in a diversity committee meeting. And that was fine. I, I don't I think it was appropriate to have those discussions. In addition, not instead, not in contrast to, but in addition, I brought up the problem of lack of political diversity and the stigmatization of people um, who don't hold left-wing views. And I was immediately accused of welcoming Nazis into the university of, of advocating for Nazis. And I'm like, shoot me, shoot me now. So, uh, you know, so, so this, this academic social scientific science work showing that that polarization produces exaggeration of other people's beliefs and attitudes. I felt like that hit me in the face in that meeting. Right. I guess for viewers who are watching this and don't know about this, you're Jewish, which is why. I am Jewish. Yes, that's right. correct. Which is why I'm being yes. called. Yeah. <laughs> which right. is what makes that funny. That's absolutely right. That's right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's a good, I, I think that's, that's helpful at differentiating between the prejudice and the stereotyping. Yeah, there's actually good evidence. There's a paper from about 10 years ago arguing, uh, they were talking mostly about demographic prejudices, not political prejudices, that much of the driver of bias and discrimination, that the evidence was that much of the driver was uh, prejudice rather than stereotypes. You know, stereotypes are kind of the cognitive component. They're the belief component. And it's not like there's no role for that. But basically, if you don't like them, it doesn't really matter what you believe about them. It's like, you know, you know, you can change my beliefs. I still don't like them. I mean, the affect often comes first in that way. So there's a lot of evidence for that also. Um, and, you know, I mean, if I like, you could, it's so easy to do this with non-social examples. If I like Coke more than Pepsi, you can persuade to me about the, the methods that Pepsi has made and their higher quality. If I like Coke better than Pepsi, I still like it better than Pepsi. Right. Yeah. Kind of similar. All right. Well, we should probably wrap things up here. I'd love to continue this talk. Maybe, uh, maybe in another few months we can have a second part of this sounds discussion. great yeah yep. well thank you again thank you chris right, take Bye-bye. care